2014 pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a devastating earthquake in the Middle East. These are current events that we've seen the last few years. Here's my question for us this morning. Do events like these mean that Christ is coming soon? Are the current events in our world today signs that Jesus' return is at hand? After all, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24 to expect uh, wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, famines, all these things before the end comes. So are these things signs that Jesus' return is at hand? Before I answer that question, consider the current events of a few generations ago. They went through two world wars. They had their own global pandemic couched in between those two wars. They witnessed the rise of Hitler and his attempt to exterminate ethnic Israelites. After the Second World War, they witnessed the establishing of the United Nations and the modern state of Israel. Surely, there were even more signs of Jesus' return in their day than we've had in our own day. And yet Christ has still not returned. So what do we make of of this question? Here's here's what we can say about current world events. Here's what the Bible does teach. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's the God of history. He's over it all. He places rulers in their place of authority according to his own providential purposes. He's over every current event that occurs in history. He's working through every current event to accomplish his saving purposes in the world. God is over it all, doing something in it all. And yet, here's what we shouldn't say. We shouldn't say that certain events are indicators that Christ is coming soon. We shouldn't read the news and seek to interpret what's happening in the world in an attempt to decipher the nearness of Christ's return. And there's a reason we shouldn't do that. Because everything that Jesus said would happen has already happened. Disciples of Jesus don't need to discern the nearness of his return. We simply need to be ready for his return. We don't need to discern the nearness of his return. We simply need to be ready for his return. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 24. This morning we're going to be looking at the second half of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, where Jesus teaches the disciples about what we would call today the end times. Now these chapters, as we saw last week, are notoriously difficult to interpret, But I want to remind you of a few things that we saw last week to help orient us to this morning's passage. First, we saw Jesus' disciples' question in verse 3. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And the disciples asked him in verse 3, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So to the disciples, the destruction of the temple would have naturally coincided with Christ's return and the final coming of the kingdom. And just like we do today, they wanted to know when these things are going to happen. When is it going to happen, Jesus? When's the end? Jesus answered their question by laying out a series of events that would happen. Messianic imposters would come. There'd be wars and rumors of wars. There'd be famines and earthquakes. There'd be persecution and gospel advancement. There would be the reappearance of the abomination of desolation in the temple. There would be great tribulation in Jerusalem. And finally, there would be the appearance of the sign of the Son of Man. Now, when we read these verses today, it's easy to read them and and to wonder immediately, how will these things play themselves out in our own day? But we saw last week the importance of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 34, Truly I say to you, 
this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. In other words, all the events that Jesus described in Matthew 24, all the way up to verse 34, were events that would happen within the generation that was alive at that time. And history testifies to us that Jesus' words were true. In AD 67, Roman armies invaded Jerusalem, and in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And here was our conclusion last week, that the destruction of the temple in AD 70 was the sign of the Son of Man. It was a coming of Jesus in judgment against his people who had rejected him. And it signified two things. It signified, first, that he's the true and only way of salvation. The temple has been superseded by Jesus, and all of Judaism's religious shadows have been fulfilled in Jesus. He's the only way. And it signified, second, that he's coming soon. Jesus says, just as the blooms of a fig tree show that spring is near, so when you see these things happening, you know that I am near at the very gates. The destruction of the temple was a sign that his return is near. And it's to that near return that Jesus focuses on with the rest of the Olivet Discourse. Let's read God's word to us this morning. We're going to begin in Matthew 24, verse 31. We're going to read all the way through the end of chapter 25. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 31. We'll begin in verse 32, I'm sorry. Verse 32 through 25. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites." In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, 
And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Church, the main idea of our passage is simple. We must be ready for Christ's return. We must be ready for Christ's return. And this morning we're going to see three things about this readiness. First, the need for readiness. 
the need for readiness. We must be ready for Christ's return because Christ's return is imminent. Christ's return is imminent. Now, for all the various theological systems of how we might interpret these chapters, how we might interpret the Bible's teaching on the end times, it seems clear to me that no matter what positions you take, there's one thing that we must not deny, and that is the imminence of Christ's return. Now, you might hear that word imminent here and there in everyday language, and a news correspondent might say that the end of a war is imminent. What they mean by that is it's likely that the end of the war is drawing near. It's going to happen soon. This idea of nearness is essentially what the biblical doctrine of Christ's imminent return is teaching. When we say imminence, we think nearness. But it's not so much a nearness in time as it is a nearness in chronology. Think about this with me for a few minutes. For instance, look at verse 33 of chapter 24. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. As we saw last week, all these things happened, which means that Jesus' return would be near. But of course, there's a problem that's been nearly 2,000 years since the temple was destroyed, and Jesus hasn't returned yet. So what did Jesus mean by near? And what do we mean when we say Christ's return is imminent? What do we mean by that? Well, Jesus' teaching in our passage today helps define imminence for us. We're going to scan through some verses together. In verse 36, we see that imminence means unknown. When you think imminence, think unknown. Look at verse 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Look, there's a stark contrast between how Jesus describes the event of the temple's destruction and how he describes the event of his return. Jesus could say definitively, the temple will be destroyed within this generation. It's going to happen within this generation. But when it comes to his return, Jesus says, no one knows when this will be except God the Father. No one knows the day or the hour, which does not mean that we can know the month or the year, right? No one knows when this is going to be. We can never mark our calendars. The return of Christ is happening here. It's unknown. It's imminent. In verses 37 through 44, we see another nuance to imminence. Imminence means unexpected. Unexpected. Jesus gives a few different pictures to underscore his point. He says, think about the days of Noah. Besides Noah and his family who were over here building an ark, everyone else in the world was just going about life as usual. They were meeting each other for coffee and they were going to weddings and, and, and they were having families. And then, unaware to them, a flood came and swept them all away. Or Jesus says, picture a typical work day. Two people are doing a job together, and without warning, one is taken away and the other is left behind. Now, the idea of taken away and left behind there, we don't know if the one that's taken is taken to judgment or taken to glory. It doesn't really matter. The point is there's a separation that will take place completely unexpectedly. You're just working your job, and a separation takes place out of nowhere. Or consider the fact that no one knows when a thief is going to try to break into the house. No one expects that to happen. No one plans for that. It just happens. It's unexpected. Verse 44 sums it up. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's almost the opposite of, of, of those who try to interpret the news and say it's about to happen. It's coming in an unexpected way when life seems absolutely normal. It's going to happen. Then the parables begin, and we see a few more nuances of imminence. 
In the parable of the wise or the foolish servant, we see that imminence means sooner than you expect. Imminence means sooner than you expect. In verse 46, the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. Except then in verse 50, the master shows up on a day when he does not expect him in an hour he does not know. He comes sooner than he thought he would. On the other hand, the next parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids, imminence means later than you expect. There, the foolish bridesmaids don't bring extra oil because they don't think it's going to take so long for the bridegroom to come. But when he's delayed, they run out of oil. It's later than they thought it would be. And then in chapter 25, verse 13, or excuse me, in the parable of the servants, those entrusted with their master's talents, we see that eminence can actually coincide with a lengthy period of time. Verse 19 tells us that it was only after a long time that the, masters, the master returned to the servants. So think about all these nuances to what Jesus teaches. He says, I'm near, but then he says, it's, it's, it's going to be, a, uh, no one knows when it is, unknown, unexpected, it may be sooner than you think, it may be later than you think, it may be a long time. So what does Jesus mean when he says his return is near? Not that it's going to happen within a brief period of time, but that it's the next thing that's going to happen. We think about the chronology of redemptive history. And Jesus is saying it's near in the sense that it's the very next thing that's going to happen in God's redemptive plan. Everything else that's going to happen is behind, and now this is what we're looking forward to. And so when we say that Christ's return is imminent, here's what we mean. Christ could return at any moment. Christ could return at any moment. This has been the case since the destruction of the temple in AD 70. He could have returned then. He could return even today. And he may not return for a thousand years. His return is imminent. And therefore the point that Jesus makes over and over in these chapters is that we must be ready. We must be ready. His return is imminent. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to be ready? Samuel Beckett wrote a famous play called Waiting for Godot in 1953. The entirety of this play is about two men standing by a tree waiting for a man named Godot. And that's it. They just stand there and wait. And they never actually do anything. A few times they say they're going to, but they, they don't. They don't, they don't leave, they don't do anything. They just stay and they wait. And the whole play, act one and act two, is them just waiting for Godot. Is this what readiness for the return of Christ should look like? Should we just spend our lives looking up at the sky, waiting for Christ to appear in the clouds? Not at all. Not at all. Readiness does not look like a passive waiting. Readiness looks like active living for Christ. That's what we see in these parables. Those who are ready for Christ's return will be marked by active living for Christ. And Jesus gives no less than five parables to make this point. This leads us to the second thing we need to see about readiness this morning, the characteristics of readiness. The characteristics of readiness. These parables are all very similar, and yet each one of them gives us a nuance to help us understand readiness from a different perspective. Each parable gives us a unique characteristic of readiness that we must display in our lives. And so we're going to walk through these parables and see these characteristics briefly this morning. First, Jesus gives a brief parable in chapter 24, verse 43, it teaches us that those who are ready must be watchful. Those who are ready must be watchful. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake 
and would not have let his house be broken into. This verse reminds me of the classic Christmas movie, Home Alone, right? As the wet bandits planned their break-ins, little did they know that eight-year-old Kevin McAllister would be ready for them. He knew they were coming, and he wasn't going to let his house be broken into. And Jesus is telling the disciples, to the world my coming will be like the unexpected coming of a thief in the night, but I'm telling you ahead of time, therefore be ready by being watchful. Be ready by being watchful. Now to be watchful in scripture means to be on the lookout. To be on the lookout for something. Popular end times teachers call us to be on the lookout for current world events in the world. That's not how the apostles understood Jesus' call to be watchful. They didn't say, read the news so you can see what's going to happen, when this is going to come. No, be watchful was constantly a call to be on the lookout in your own spiritual life. Listen to how Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 and 5. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. To be watchful is a call to watch over our hearts as we wait for the return of Christ. To be alert to the reality of spiritual warfare. To be alert to the fact that, that the flesh and the world and the devil are against us, and they don't want us to be waiting for Christ's return. Practically speaking, the person who is watchful is the person who prays. The person who is watchful is the person who prays. And I'm going to ask, is that you? Jesus' return is imminent. Does your prayer life indicate that you are ready? Does your prayer life indicate that you are remaining watchful because you know that day is coming? Are you bringing your heart before the Lord regularly, pouring out your heart to him and, and making sure that you are in the faith and persevering in the gospel? Jesus' return is imminent. We must be watchful. Next, we come to the parable of the wise or the foolish servant. And here, Jesus teaches us that those who are ready are faithful. Those who are ready are those who live faithful lives. The parable itself is really simple. The the master leaves his servant in charge of his household while he goes away on a journey. And when the master returns, he will either find that the servant faithfully cared for his household, or he'll find that the servant neglected and abused his household. Jesus wants us to consider this question. If he returned today, if Jesus returned today, would he find us living faithfully or unfaithfully? If Jesus returned today, would he find you seeing to the responsibilities he's given you in this world or neglecting them? During my first year of Bible college, the theme of my dorm floor was faithful today. It's not profound, really, but it's so important. Think about it this way. If we're going to live a life of faithfulness, we need to live faithfully one day at a time. If we're going to live a whole life of faithfulness to the Lord, we need to begin today and be faithful today and then faithful the next day and faithful the next day. It may just be that one of those days is the day when Christ returns. Those who are ready are those who live each day faithfully to his calling. Well, this leads into the next parable of the ten virgins, or we might understand that better as the ten bridesmaids in chapter 25. The parable has some cultural customs that are a little less familiar to us today. They did weddings a little different, but uh, Boyd family, feel free to take some of these customs and apply them in a few months. Um, We can change it up, right? Still easy to understand the main point of the parable. It was customary for the bridegroom to come to the place where the bridesmaids were on the evening of the wedding and lead the bridal party to the wedding feast in the evening. 
in the parable, however, the bridegroom is late in coming. He doesn't get there till midnight. He's so late that they're all falling asleep. But there were five wise bridesmaids who anticipated that could happen. Maybe they knew something about the bridegroom. Maybe he wasn't normally a timely guy. Who knows? But they were prepared. They had extra oil for their lamps, while the other five brought no extra oil with them. And when he came, they, they weren't there. They were going to get more oil, and they were gone once he came. Now, commentators through the centuries have never been able to agree on what the oil represents, what the lamp represents, and this probably means that it doesn't represent one thing specifically. The characteristic of readiness that this parable is pointing us to is simply that we must be prepared to persevere until the end. We must be prepared to persevere until the end. If his coming is delayed, will we continue to be ready? Will we remain looking for that day? Will we continue to be ready? When he comes, will we have enough oil for our lamps, so to speak? Think about the generations before us that anticipated he might return in this generation, and and he never did. And yet they remained faithful, and they were prepared for the end until the end. Are we like that? Again, practically speaking, I want to remind us of the words of Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So one way that we stay prepared is by coming together week by week and encouraging each other to keep waiting, to keep looking, to continue persevering for that day. Let's stir each other up to that end week by week. The very act of gathering is how we do that, church. Gathering together to stir each other up toward that day. So readiness means watchfulness. Readiness means faithfulness. Readiness means being prepared. The next parable of the talents. In this story, a master entrusts various sums of money to three of his servants, and he goes away on a long journey. Now the first two servants take what he gives them, and they work hard, and they trade, and they make even more. But the last servant simply hides what was given in the ground for safekeeping. When the master returns, the first two servants are commended for what they have done, but the third servant is condemned. The characteristic that this parable teaches us, what does it mean to be ready? Those who are ready are enterprising. Now, I know that's not a familiar word, not a common word, but it's an important word, enterprising. To be enterprising is to be resourceful, and ambitious in what you do and with what you have. People who are enterprising work hard to make much of what they've been given. Now the two servants that are commended in this parable are both enterprising in this way, but here's the key, their ambition is not selfish, it's not self-serving, they are servants who use what they've been given and are ambitious to use those resources for the advancement of the master's estate. They want to advance his estate. They want to advance his agenda. They are being enterprising servants for him. And this is really where we begin to see in these parables that readiness is not passive. Readiness is not a passive thing. The passive servant, in fact, is the one who is condemned. The one who doesn't do anything is the one who is condemned. The one who just hides it in the ground. He didn't lose it, but he didn't do anything with it. He's the one who is condemned in the end. Those who are ready are those who actively work hard to advance Christ's kingdom with all the resources that he's given to us. Those who are ready for his return are those who seek to steward their money and their time and their gifts and all of it in order to advance the gospel in the world. 
So church, I want to ask, if your Christian life is passive, what does that say about you? It means that you aren't ready for Christ's return. If you're living a passive Christian life and you're not investing in the kingdom and in gospel advancement, then you are not ready. His return is imminent. How are you seeking to advance his kingdom today? Finally, the Olivet Discourse ends with a scene of final judgment. Jesus uses the image of a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. He describes the separation that will take place between the righteous and the wicked when he comes. Now, what is the basis of the separation that takes place on that day? On what basis are the sheep separated from the goats? We might quickly jump without reading it to say that the separation is someone's faith in Jesus. The sheep believed in him and the goats didn't believe in him. But look again at verses 35 and 36. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then jump down to verse 40 where the shepherd Cain says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Listen carefully, church. We need to understand this. On the day of judgment, Christ will judge each person according to their love for his people. On the day of judgment, Christ will judge each one of us according to our love for his people, the least of these my brothers. Throughout Matthew, that's speaking of his people, his disciples, his little children. To put it another way, the basis of the separation that occurs on that day will be whether or not each person ministered to the needs of his body, ministered to the needs of his disciples, ministered to the needs of his church. Now listen, this is in no way to deny that justification is by faith alone. Justification, being declared righteous with God, is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We're not denying that. Jesus does not deny that. But instead, this is affirming that the faith which justifies is never alone. The faith which justifies is never alone. It will always come with evidence. And the faith which justifies will be marked by loving ministry to Christ's people. Loving ministry to Christ's people. This is the final characteristic of readiness. Loving service to the church. Loving service to the church. Those who are ready are those who lovingly minister to the needs of Christ's body here on earth. Now my heart was so encouraged as I meditated on this final characteristic because by God's grace, Redeemer Church, you have been lovingly serving each other's needs so well over the last few months. And I just praise God for that evidence of your readiness for Christ's return. When you love and serve each other, it shows you're ready for him to come back. And yet still I want to ask, how are you this morning ministering to the needs of the saints? Are you loving the little ones of Christ's church? Are your eyes open to those around you who are struggling? And are you moving toward them in loving service. Christ's return is imminent, and those who are ready are those who lovingly serve his people as we wait. Now to those who are ready, Jesus promises a great reward, and this leads us to the final thing that we need to see this morning, the reason for readiness. The reason for readiness. Christ's return is imminent. We must be ready. We've seen what that looks like, but why is all this so important? Why do we need to be ready What is the reason that we should want to be ready? Why does it matter? 
And this is why. Those who are ready will enter into the joy of eternal life with Christ. But those who are not ready will depart into the misery of eternal separation from Christ. I'll say it again. Those who are ready will enter into the joy of eternal life with Christ. But those who are not ready will depart into the misery of eternal separation from Christ. Readiness is a salvation issue in this passage. Readiness is the line between heaven and hell in this passage. If you're ready, you enter into eternal life. If you're not ready, you depart into eternal suffering. In each of the four extended parables, Jesus emphasizes both sides of this reality. Listen to the different ways that Christ describes the reward that will be given to those who are ready for his return. To the faithful servant, he says in chapter 24, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. To the wise bridesmaids, in chapter 25, verse 10, they went in with him to the marriage feast. To the good stewards, he says in verses 21 to 23, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And to the sheep, in verse 34, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice that the rewards given in each parable, they fit the setting of the parable. So the faithful servant is set over his master's possessions. The bridesmaids enter the marriage feast. The good servants are set over much. These are pictures of a reward that's good and fitting for what the parable represents. But what do the pictures point us to? What do the pictures actually convey? The reality of the reward is captured in the final reward. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's not parable language. That's real language. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Church, this is the reward of those who are ready. Eternal life with Christ in God's kingdom. This is what we will receive for living lives of watchfulness and faithfulness, for being prepared, for being enterprising, for loving the, those in Christ's body. When Jesus comes, we will inherit the kingdom of God and we will enter into the joy of our master, into the joy of eternal life with Jesus. But... Look now at the different ways that Christ describes the punishment of those who are not ready. To the wicked servant, he says in chapter 24, verse 51, the master will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To the foolish bridesmaids, he says in verses 10 through 12, chapter 25, the door to the marriage feast was shut. Then the bridegroom says, I never knew you. The passive steward who buried the talent in the ground, he says, cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the goats on his left, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now while the rewards above fit perfectly in the setting of the parable, the punishment seemed to go way beyond the setting of the parable, don't they? Being cut into pieces, being thrown into outer darkness, departing into eternal fire, residing in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is all this horrific language intended to convey? What is Jesus saying? Well, all of this is captured in 
the three words Jesus says in verse 41, depart from me. Depart from me. Church, Jesus used terrifying imagery to describe the horrors of hell. But all that terrifying imagery is meant to convey something truly terrifying, something that should truly wake us up to the horror of hell. The true horror of hell is eternal separation from our maker. The true horror of hell is eternal separation from Jesus Christ. Nothing should be more terrifying to us than to be cut off from the giver of life and the fountain of all joy forever and ever. But this is exactly what will happen to those who are not ready when he returns. If you're not ready, that is you. He will say, I never, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. The final verse couldn't be clearer. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If Jesus returned today, where would you go? If Jesus returned today, would you be ready? Only those who are ready will go into eternal life. Now church, as we prepare to respond this morning, I want to point your attention back to Jesus' words in verse 36 of chapter 34, 24, 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now it is one thing for us to admit that we don't know when Christ will return, but how is it that Jesus could say, nor the Son? Nor the Son. How is it that Jesus himself did not know the day, or the hour. It is not because he's lacking in divinity. This verse does not teach a lack of divinity in Jesus. He is fully God. What it teaches that he's also fully human. He took on our humanity. The Son didn't know the day or the hour because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The son didn't know the day or the hour because he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The son didn't know the day or the hour because he was only a few short days and hours away from the cross. Let none of us believe this morning that readiness is a work that we do to inherit eternal life. Readiness is not something that we do to get eternal life. The death and resurrection of Jesus the Son is the only way to have eternal life. What is readiness then? Readiness ultimately is nothing more than our loving response to him for what he's done for us. Think about it this way. Why did the faithful servant, why was he faithful? Why was he faithful in his master's household? Because he loved his master. He was a faithful servant because his master freed him from a terrible slavery. Why were the bridesmaids so well prepared? Because the bridegroom first loved them and laid down his life for them. Why were the stewards so joyful to advance their master's work? Because he joyfully labored to save them first. Why did the sheep gladly minister to the needs of his people? Because he's the good shepherd who laid down his life for them. The reason that they were ready is because they knew the love of Christ and they loved him. And so whenever you read the Olivet Discourse, 
Matthew 24, Matthew 25, and you come across these words, nor the Son. Remember that Jesus already came once, and he came to die in our place for our sins. And if we remember that well, what he did for us in his first coming, then we will live a life of readiness for his second coming. If you remember what he did when he first came, you'll be ready when he comes again.